Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. I actually have two scripture readings this morning. The first is here in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 22 and going through the third verse of chapter 2. You find that on page 1014 in the few Bibles. Uh, and after what you've read in 1 Peter, we're going to go to Luke chapter 11 uh, and be reading verses 9 through 13, which you will find on page 869 uh, in the few Bibles. And we have chosen these two texts this morning because in these texts we see the means of grace which God has given to his church. First, the word and then also prayer. Two weeks ago, on the last Sunday of 2013, I spoke to you about resolutions for good. Those, those resolutions that we tend to make at this time of year. Resolutions to, to change our lives in some way for the better. And I tried to give you a Christian perspective upon such resolutions. And the first thing we saw was that such resolutions are good. They are good to make. They are honored by God. They are even necessary in the Christian life. When we hear God's call, when we hear His commands, we must resolve to obey. Nothing says we have to do that at the beginning of the year, but we must make such resolutions. We must resolve to follow. Second, not only did we see that such resolutions are good, but we saw that we must make such resolutions for the sake of God's glory. It is His glory which motivates us to resolve to change. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't make the typical resolutions. You know, at the beginning of a new year, people tend to make resolutions about diet and about, about exercise. And such resolutions are still appropriate. They are still good, so long as they are made for the sake of God's Glory and not for some other less divine reason. But not only are the typical resolutions, the, the typical resolutions about diet and exercise available to us, but there's a whole range of resolutions that we ought to be making. Resolutions to bring our life more and more into conformity and into submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The third thing we saw is that we keep such resolutions only by God's grace. That it is God's grace that enables us to fulfill the resolutions that we make. And finally, we saw that there is more than, a gr more than enough grace necessary for the task. All the immeasurable power of God is at the disposal of those who believe. As Peter says, in Christ, by faith, we have everything that pertains to life and godliness. And so we saw the goodness of resolutions. We saw the, the goal of resolutions. We, we even saw the power to keep resolutions available to us in the, the person of the Holy Spirit. But this left us with a question. If all the power that we need is available to us in Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit, if, if, all the, uh, if everything that pertains to life and godliness is ours in Him, then why do we so often fail? Why do we often, so often fail to keep our resolutions? In seeking an answer to that question, we found that it was really not hard to find. It's rather straightforward. We fail not because power is unavailable, but rather we fail because the power that is available remains unused. 
don't use the power that God has made available to us in Christ. We don't plug in. We don't make regular use of the ordinary means of grace that He has given to His church. And so with that in mind, this morning we are going to begin a study that will take us you know, three or four weeks as we look at these means of grace in more detail. And as we consider how we might make better use of the resolutions, I mean of the, the means that He has given us to keep the resolutions that we make to bring our life into accord with His Gospel. We've been called to live lives worthy of His name, worthy of Him, worthy of our calling. To do that, we must learn to use the means that He has given us. Now, if you look at your outline, you'll see that this morning's sermon is, is titled um, differently on the outline than it is in the bulletin. That's because there was a change between when those two things were printed. And this morning, uh, the outline is more accurate than uh, the bulletin. And so this is where we're going to... Uh, go. So let's begin with our first text. First Peter chapter one, beginning at verse 22. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Here in Luke chapter 11, the disciples have asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And in response, He has given them the Lord's prayer, but He also gives them teaching about God's eagerness to answer those prayers. And let's begin in verse 9. Jesus says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon our study this morning. Father God, be with us as we turn our attention to Your Word. Grant us faith. Grant us understanding, grant us love, that we might receive and believe and bring forth the fruit of your word in our lives this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, in these two texts, first in First Peter, then in Luke, we see 
the means of grace, the means that God has given us for plugging into the grace that is available to us in Christ. In 1 Peter, we, we see the Word. Then in Luke, we see prayer. But before we look at these individually, I think we must be careful to define our term. What is a means of grace exactly? I've been assuming a definition, but I want to look at it a little bit more closely before we press on. When I right-click on the word means on my computer and it brings up the online dictionary, it, it defines means this way. It says that a means is simply something that enables someone to do something. That's a pretty general definition. It's something that enables someone to do something. And, and we use the word that way all the time when we speak of a means to an end. The means is what allows you to accomplish or to attain the, the goal or the, the purpose, the end that you have in mind. So in this case, the, the goal or the purpose is grace. The goal is the empowering grace of God available to us in Christ. The, the grace that equips and enables us to live lives worthy of His name. That's the goal. That's the end. And the means of grace is the thing that allows us to attain that grace, to, to access it, to plug into it, so that it does empower and equip us to live the lives that we have been called to live. Now, when you think about that definition, you need to notice something. Notice that the means is not the source. The means is not the source of God's grace. The source of grace is God himself. The source of grace is, is God's saving work in Jesus Christ. Just think of how Paul so often begins his letters to the churches. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God and Christ together are the source of grace. So the means is, is not the source, but rather it is the instrument or the tool by which that grace is poured into our lives. You might think of it as the, the plug by which we connect to the outlet. You see, a, a fan doesn't work unless it's plugged into the wall, but the outlet by itself and the plug by itself, that doesn't do anything unless it's connected to the, the power source. It is simply the tool, the, the receptacle by which the power flows to the fan. And that's the way we ought to think of the means of grace. It is that plug, it is that cord, that means by which God's grace flows to us so that it can accomplish its purposes in our lives. And when we begin to speak this way, I know some people get uncomfortable. They, they don't like the idea that we need an instrument or that we need a tool, that we need a cord for God's grace to flow into our lives. They, they want it uh, to, to be sort of more mystical, more immediate, more transcendent. This seems all too mechanical, too mechanistic. They don't like the idea that, that we do something and somehow get God's grace. And I understand that concern. I do. And we must be wary of it because you know, the Old Testament prophets, they make it abundantly clear that going through the motions, going through the motions of worship or going through the motions of, of sacrifice, that this no way guarantees that God's grace will flow into your life. We must not fall into the trap of thinking that if we use these means mechanistically, that, that somehow if we just use the right words, if we just go through the right rituals, then God's grace will automatically flow and we'll get what we 
want. That's not what we're talking about. But nevertheless, we are talking about tools that we must use. We're talking about real means. And I want to suggest to you that it shouldn't surprise us that God has set things up this way. It shouldn't surprise us that, that God has given us means by which to access His grace because He's done it in other areas of creation as well. Just think about how you maintain and, and sustain your own physical life. Has God not ordained means to that end? Of course He has. Is God sovereign over your life? Yes, God is, is sovereign over your life. Has He, has he ordained the, the length of your days? Of course He has ordained the length of your days. He has life in Himself. Only He has life in Himself. And He has given us that life as a, as a gift. And He has determined sovereignly what life we will have. And yet, with all of that being true, you better eat lunch. You better drink water. You better look both ways before you cross the street. Because God has given us means for sustaining the life that we have. We have to eat. We have to to drink. Those are the means, the ordinary means, of maintaining our physical life. Well, the means of grace work in much the same way. Way Is God the sovereign source of grace? Has He determined to give that grace to His elect? Absolutely, He is sovereign. Absolutely, He is the source. And yet, He has given us means that we must use in order to appropriate, in order to access, in order to make use of the grace that He has sovereignly determined to give us. He In His divine wisdom, a wisdom that is a mystery to us. We we can't figure out exactly how His sovereignty and our responsibility fit together. But Scripture teaches both. And in His divine, mysterious wisdom, He has ordained that we must make use of the ordinary means of grace that He has given us in order to sustain and grow our spiritual lives. In exactly the same way that we must eat and drink in order to sustain and grow our physical lives. So that's what a means of grace is. It is is the means, the mechanism, the tool that God has given us that allows us to plug into His power. But what is the tool? What are the means of grace that He has Given us. Well, I sort of gave it away in my scripture readings because uh, it, it highlights the, the means of grace as I understand them, as our, as our tradition teaches. The means of grace are God's word and prayer. Now, I have to admit, there's no verse in scripture that says, here's the means of grace. Use these. There's no, there's no scripture text that says the means of grace are the word and Prayer and, and throughout church history, different teachers have sort of listed them differently. Some, our own confession of faith, lists the word, the sacraments in prayer. Other theologians, I have a number of systematic theologies on my uh, shelves in my office, and I pulled down several of them this week, and I was just sort of looking at them. Uh, and uh, I came across several lists, and they you know, add things like worship, they add things like fellowship, they add things like, like mercy. There's other things that are listed, and, and I think all of those lists are helpful. They're all different ways of, of conceptualizing the same reality. But I think it's good to stick with the basics of word and prayer, because all the other things that get added really fit under these two headings. 
For example, the, the confession adds the sacraments, but the sacraments are a visible word. We'll talk more about them when we when we come to talking about corporate worship. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. This is a visible word. This is us tangibly touching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a different message. It's not a different grace. It is simply the word made visible. It is the it is a sign of the gospel. And in the same way, things like worship and, and fellowship, these are not different means so much as they are ways of using. They are contexts within which the word and prayer work. And so for our purposes, I want to focus on these two. When we think about the means of grace, I want us to think about the word and I want us to think about prayer. And in the couple of weeks ahead, we're going to look at, well, how do we use word and prayer in worship? And how do we use word and prayer in in small groups? And how do we use the word and prayer in our own private, individual devotion before God? And we'll be talking about that. But this morning, I want us to look at the, the things themselves and just ask, how does the word function as a means of grace? And how does prayer function as a means of grace? So let's first look at the word. How does the word function as a means of grace. And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 1 and into chapter 2. So turn back there. If you're still in Luke, turn back to 1 Peter. We'll be coming back to Luke in just a minute. But let's look at 1 Peter here and see what Paul says and, or what Peter says. And what we see is that really he highlights two things that the word does in the life of a believer. The first thing that the word does is that it gives us new life. Notice he says that the word is the seed of our new life in Christ. He begins, having purified your souls. That is, he assumes that they have been purified. They have been purified from the defilement of sin. This is something that has been done. And this has been done, he says, by your obedience to the faith. That's not the phrase that we might have expected. We might have expected him to say something about faith here. Aren't we purified uh, by Faith? Well, I want to suggest to you that really the phrase obedience to the truth is simply a biblical way of describing faith. You know, we, we sometimes in our culture today, and evangelicals in today, define faith in ways that make it almost stand at odds with obedience to the truth. But in Scripture, these two are, are different ways of, of describing the same reality. To, to have Christian faith is to submit our lives to the truth revealed in Jesus Christ. To have obedience to the truth is to submit your life to the truth that is revealed in Jesus Christ. And so it is by obedience to the faith that the elect to whom Paul, to whom Peter is writing, have purified their souls. And notice the reason for this purification. They have been purified by faith. Why? So that they might express a sincere brotherly love. They have been purified by faith to love. And from that flows Peter's exhortation. He says, therefore, because that's the goal of your salvation, you ought to fulfill that goal. Now you ought to love one another with a pure heart. But it's what he says next that I want you to notice. He says, you have been purified by your obedience to the truth, by your faith, for a sincere belief love. Therefore, you ought to love one another. And he says, you ought to do all this because since... You have been born again. How? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, the living and abiding word of God. You see, Peter knows that they have been purified because they have been born again through the seed of the word of God. It is the word 
which has given them new life. And this word, he says, is the good news that was preached to you. So the gospel preached by the apostles is the source of new life in Christ. It is what purifies us. It is what sets us free from the the guilt and the corruption of sin. It is what gives us new life. It's no wonder that Paul says in in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The word gives life. In the same way that God's word at creation brought into existence that, that which did not exist, brought into existence light, brought into existence the planet, brought into existence the oceans and the land and the vegetation and the animals and even mankind and stuff. In the same way that God's word brought all these things into existence. So God's word creates new life in the sinner. In fact, Paul says this very thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says that just as God's word brought forth light at creation, it now brings forth light in our hearts. I can't explain to you exactly how the word works any more than I can explain to you creation ex nihilo. I can't explain to you how God's speaking brings something into existence. But I can tell you that it does. Because the word of God is living and active. It is powerful. And it will not fail to accomplish its purpose. The word of God brings life. We see a picture of this in Ezekiel 37. Remember the vision that Ezekiel was given? It was a a vision of dry bones, a valley full of, of dry bones. And the Lord asks Ezekiel, Ezekiel, do you think these bones can live? How would you answer that question? Ezekiel wisely defers. He says, well, God, you know. You know whether they can live or not. I I don't know. He says, but you, you know. And then the Lord instructs Ezekiel to preach to the bones. And he begins proclaiming the word to the bones. And as he proclaims the word to the bones, they come together and they come to life. That is what the word of God can do. It gives life to the dead. It brings light into the darkness. It gives new life. But there's another thing that the Word does. Not only does the Word bring life where there was none, not only does it give new birth, but Peter also tells us that it causes us to grow into that life. Look what he writes in 1 Peter 2.2. He says, like newborn infants, we ought to long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it we may grow up to salvation. Now, in the context, the pure spiritual milk that he's referring to is unmistakably the word of God. It is this gospel, this good news that was preached to them. Peter is saying that you ought to long for this the way that a newborn longs for its mother's milk. And the reason that we long for this word is stated there that we may grow into salvation. And when Peter speaks about growing into salvation, he's not talking about getting saved the way that phrase normally is used in the evangelical church today. These people are already are saved. He's, he's made that abundantly clear in what he's written up to this point. But rather, he's saying something similar to what Paul says in Philippians when, he, when, Philippians, uh, when Paul tells the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. That's what, that's what Peter's talking about. He's talking about growing up into your salvation. He's talking about having your life become more and more in accord with the calling that you have received in Christ. Having your life become more and more worthy of the gospel that you have 
believe. That's what Paul is talking about, about growing towards maturity in Christ. And he says that happens as you are nourished by the word, as you are nourished by the gospel. So not only does the gospel give new life, but it nourishes us to grow up in that life. It nourishes us to grow up into salvation. It's the same thing we see in a passage like Psalm 19, where the psalmist tells us that the word The Word makes wise the simple. The Word revives the soul. The Word rejoices the heart. The Word enlightens the mind. I don't have time to unpack all those phrases this morning, but just just think about what the psalmist is saying. He's saying it is the Word that does all these things. It's the same thing that Paul says when he says that it is the Word, the Gospel, which equips us for every good work. The Word of God is powerful and it works in the lives of believers to to make them alive and then to cause them to grow up in the salvation that they have in Christ. That is why we speak of the word as a means of grace. See, God has ordained that his power, his grace will flow through his word as we meditate upon it, as we Dwell and we let it dwell in our hearts as we feed upon it, as we are nourished by it. The word will make alive. The word will cause to grow. But the word is not the only means of grace. There is another means of grace that is mentioned in Scripture. And that second means of grace, that second tool that God uses to flow grace into our lives is prayer. And we see that in Luke chapter 11. Turn there with me. Again, I don't have time to to unpack this fully, but just look at what Jesus tells us about prayer here in these verses. He's, he's taught them how to pray, and then he encourages them to pray by saying, listen, your prayers will benefit you much because your father is eager to respond to your prayers. In fact, we sometimes hear this parable that he tells us in, in verses 5 through 8 about a man who has a friend and he goes to him at midnight to ask for help. We, we sometimes hear that parable as if Jesus was, was telling just another version of the persistent widow. You see, later in Luke, Jesus is going to tell a parable about a persistent widow and he's going to say, you too ought to be persistent in prayer. And we think this is an example of a man who is persistent. But that's not actually what Jesus is getting at here. The emphasis here is not upon our persistence in asking, but it's upon God's willingness to give. God is willing to give. He is eager to give. He is desiring to respond. And therefore, in light of God's eagerness to answer our prayers, he says, ask and you will receive. To the one who asks, it will be given. This is what Jesus wants us to see just as our earthly fathers delight to give good gifts to their children. So much more does your heavenly father delight to give good things to his children. So much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. When you think about it, that is an amazing statement. The maker of heaven and earth is just waiting for you to ask. He's just he's just waiting for you to ask that he might give you everything that you need, that he might pour into your life the immeasurable power of the Holy Spirit. That is what is available to those 
who ask. It's no wonder that Jesus says, ask anything in my name and I will do it. Of course we know that that doesn't mean that, that Jesus' name is some sort of you know, magic incantation that we can use to get whatever we want. But, but it means that when we ask in Jesus' name, for the sake of His name, for the sake of His glory, when we ask for what we need to live a life worthy of His name, He will give it. He gives graciously. He gives abundantly without finding fault, James tells us. If you lack you lack because you have not asked. Ask, and He will give. That is the power of prayer. It's no wonder James says that the prayers of the righteous are effective. Now, I know, again, at this moment, our, our minds, with our understanding of God's sovereignty, they begin to swirl and we begin to ask, well, well, how can prayer do anything if God is sovereign? Hasn't God foreordained it all from before the foundations of the earth? Yeah, yeah. It's a mystery, I'll grant you. I don't understand it either. But are you going to call God a liar? He says the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. He says that they accomplish. He says, ask and you will receive. There is a direct relationship. You don't have because you didn't ask. When you ask, you will receive. God said that, not some Arminian. And so we must understand that. Prayer is a real means of grace. It is a real means by which God pours His grace into our lives. Prayer changes things because the sovereign God of all creation has ordained to use prayer as the means by which He will accomplish His purposes. And so we see that we have these two means of grace. Two means by which God uh, means to pour light, pour grace into our lives. He has given us the word and he has given us prayer. And as we use these two instruments, God's grace will flow into our lives. And so what I want to say to you this morning is simply this, that if you are not growing if you feel powerless to live a life worthy of the gospel, if you feel powerless to put to death the sinful passions of your flesh, if you feel powerless to, to live the life you've been called to live, then you must examine your use of these means. Are you plugged in? Are you using the tools that God has given you? Over the next few weeks, we will be studying how we use these tools in different contexts. How we use these tools when we gather for worship. How we use these tools when we gather in smaller groups. How we use these tools when we are by ourselves individually. And in studying how we use these tools, I, I hope that we will be better equipped to use the tools that God has given us. When we lived in St. Louis while I was in seminary, Sarah and I bought an old house. And when I say an old house, I mean an old house. A house built in 1891. And this was an old house. And uh, this house had been renovated at some point. It had been renovated in the 40s. That's when they added the kitchen and the, the bathroom. And so 
The kitchen and the bathroom had been built in the 40s, and they really hadn't been touched since. And so when we moved in to this house in the 90s, we decided that was one of our first priorities. We needed to redo the, the kitchen and the bathroom. And we, the bathroom was a lot smaller, so we thought we'd start there. And, and so we, we look at this bathroom, and we start thinking about how can we update it? Well, we need to replace this sink, and we need to replace this, and we need to replace that. And so we begin planning what we need to do. And as I'm telling, probably complaining, to my neighbor about what we're going to be doing in the bathroom, he says, oh, you know, there's a tool that will help you. And so he goes over to his house and he pulls it out of his toolbox and he brings it over. He says, this will really help you getting the, the sink off the wall. So I took that tool into the bathroom and I looked at it. And I looked at it some more and I was like, I have no idea what this is for. How do you use this tool? I don't have any idea. And so I had to walk back across the street. And I said, hey, any chance you could come over and show me how to use this tool? I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to do with it. I've still got tools just like that in my toolbox and I can't remember anymore. It was a long time ago, but there are tools and they don't look like anything I've ever seen before, but there are tools designed for the task. And when you use them, they work well. They make the job possible. Well, I think a lot of us, a lot of us think about the Christian life that way. We, we think about the means of grace as tools we have no idea how to use. Yes, we're glad to know that the power is available. Yes, we're glad to know the tools are there. But how do we use them? That's the question I hope that we can begin to answer together over the course of the next few weeks. We have these tools, amazing tools, the word and prayer, tools that God has ordained to use to pour his immeasurably great power into our lives. Hopefully, over the course of the next few weeks, we can learn how to use these tools well, or at least learn how to use them better. Because all the immeasurable power of God is at our disposal. It is worth the effort to learn how to use the tools. Because if we use the tools He has given us, He will do all that He has promised. And all that He has promised is more than we can possibly imagine. And because He will do this for us, According to his great mercy. That is why we call this good news. Now, do you believe that? Amen. Pray with me. Father God. What a blessing it is to know. That your power is at our disposal. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at your right hand is now at work in us who believe. But Father God, we admit to you that we do not make regular use of the tools you have given us. Partly because we are lazy, but partly because we just don't know how to use them. Father, I pray that you would use our study over the next few weeks to equip us to better use the tools that you have given us. That we might know more fully the power of the grace that flows into our lives through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.